Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at the New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today... It was the world's most personal resettlement program. As other countries said no, ordinary Canadians signed up for a grand social experiment, adopting Syrian refugees for one year. So what happens as that year ends? And now that the Republican health care bill is dead, what's the future of the Democratic plan it was supposed to replace? It's Monday, March 27th. On Friday... President Trump went out of his way to say that the failure of the Republican health care bill was not the fault of House Speaker Paul Ryan. Then, on Saturday... Hello and welcome to justice. Trump encouraged his 27 million Twitter followers to tune in to Fox News at 9 p.m. I'm Judge Jeanine Pirro. Thanks for being with us. To watch his friend, Judge Jeanine Pirro. My opening statement... Paul Ryan needs to step down as Speaker of the House. The reason? He failed to deliver the votes on his health care bill, the one trumpeted to repeal and replace Obamacare, the one that he had seven years to work on, the one he hid under lock and key in the basement of Congress, the one that had to be pulled to prevent the embarrassment of not having enough votes to pass. This went on for six minutes. Ryan, she said, had let his president down. And Speaker Ryan, you come in with all your swagger and experience and you sell him a bill of goods, which ends up a complete and total failure. And you allow our president in his first 100 days to come out of the box like that? Judge Pirro is saying there was zero communication with President Trump before the show. Speaker Ryan's spokesperson is saying his relationship with President Trump is stronger than ever. And publicly, President Trump is turning his focus onto the Democrats. I've been saying for the last year and a half that the best thing we can do, politically speaking, is let Obamacare explode. It is exploding right now. All right, we're calling Margo. Margo. Hey, Margo. It's Michael. How are you? Hey, hey I'm good. Margo, is Obamacare exploding? No, I really don't think that it is. Margot Sanger-Katz writes about health care for The Times. 
It's definitely true that the Obamacare markets for people who buy their own insurance have had some difficulties in the last year, and there are reasons why we should be a little bit worried about them. Mm-hmm. And, but the reality is, is that it looks like they're basically going to work out okay. That does not mean that they cannot explode. I mean, mm-hmm. I think one of the big questions as we look forward to what the Trump administration does is they have a choice now, which is do we want to help stabilize these things, make them work the best that they're going to work? Or do we want to be the one lighting the fuse that makes them explode? I think that they have tools available to them that could push things in either direction. But if you imagined a kind of status quo, like maybe where Obama was still president and things were kind of coasting along, I think it would be reasonable to expect that these markets would do just fine. So the other immediate narrative from Republicans after this bill failed beyond Obamacare is going to explode anyway, was, well, that's over, and we're on to the next thing, and that next thing's probably taxes. And I want to understand why that's seen as such a foregone conclusion that Republicans would just pick up and totally move on from something so fundamental. This is something they've campaigned on for years, that they're going to replace the Affordable Care Act. Why would they just pick up their marbles and walk away after an initial failure? really good question. Obamacare is definitely something that has been really important to almost all Republicans and has been crucial to their political message for so many years. On the other hand, I think what we have seen is that there is not enough common ground among Republicans in Congress and the White House to actually come up with some kind of health care policy. Mm-hmm. And so there are lots of things that have been written in the aftermath of, you know, the bill getting pulled from the floor on Friday. And lots of people say things like, oh, well, if only Trump had been a better negotiator and had been more engaged mm-hmm. in the policy details, or if only they had taken more time and had hearings, and if only, you know, Paul Ryan had been nicer to the Freedom Caucus, et cetera. Um, that they could have reached a deal. You know, this is just my opinion, but I think that actually none of that is really true. I think that this was sort of their best chance to do something. And the problems that undermined this particular effort will continue to be problems in the future if they come back with something else. Margot, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. No, no problem. I'm so uh, tickled to be invited back. We'll be right back. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. No one else built this bold because no one else thought this big. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetrics 2H2020 US report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not endorsement. Hello. Hi, Peggy. It's Michael Barbaro from The New York Times. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Peggy Karras is a retired geography teacher in Toronto. I wanted to start by asking you, you know, before you'd met any family, kind of when did you learn that there was trouble in Syria? Well, clearly the news reports from several years ago when the war first started. I was, you know, following the news and what was happening there. And when did you decide to get involved? Well, I think for so many people, that little boy on the beach was a really sort of eye-opener and, you know, really hit me. Good evening. It's rare that we have to warn you right from the top of the newscast about what you're about to see, but the photo we're going to show you has quickly resonated across the world. The three-year-old Syrian boy who washed up, drowned, 
on a Turkish beach. Aylan Kurdi was three years old when he lost his life crossing the Mediterranean Sea to Europe. But what was it about that story in particular that mattered so much? I think so it was much? because his family was trying so hard to get to Canada because they had an aunt here in Canada. Alan's aunt lived in Canada. Katrin Einhorn is a reporter at The Times. And Alan's aunt had actually tried to bring in another relative and it had trouble doing that. His five-year-old brother Gullip and their mother also drowned in a desperate attempt to find a better life. And Canadians just felt heartsick and thought, oh my gosh, we could have prevented this. Yeah, there seems to be growing determination at most every level to help with this critical situation. In fact, Google searches over 24 hours from Wednesday to Thursday show the number one question Canadians searched on refugees was how to sponsor a Syrian refugee. So how can we help? And so, as many other countries shun them, Canada embarked on a national movement to embrace Syrian refugees. The country revived an old program called Private Sponsorship that would pair thousands of Canadians with refugee families for one year. They sign up for a 12-month obligation to help these families financially and socially, practically, logistically, so that they can settle into life in Canada. So in February of 2015... This week, Canadian airports will be the sites of some first tentative steps in Canada, a door to a new life. On social media, the Twitter hashtag Welcome to Canada has been trending. Uh, just one typical tweet for you from Julie Ann Morneau saying, So proud to be Canadian. I live in a country that is choosing compassion over fear. Welcome to your new home. Thank you. You saw everyday citizens in Canada rise up and say, we're going to make this our problem. We're going to take this on. We think we can change the life of one Syrian family. Jody Cantor and Katrin Einhorn have reported on the program over its 12 months, focusing on the story of one sponsor group and one refugee family. Canada was placing the opposite bet on Syrian refugees as the rest of the world. They were saying... These people can be absorbed, they can belong, they can eventually contribute and prosper in this country. And so we wanted to see if that was going to at least begin to happen with the Hajjahs. Tell me the story of the Hajj family. The dad, Muhammad, was a farmer. The mom, Wissam, stayed home. They had three children at the time. Majid and Zahaya uh, are the twins. Mutayam uh, is their younger brother. He's the family comedian. Mm-hmm. They led a really traditional Life. They were surrounded by extended family. Um, they're really devout Muslims. And then the beginning of fighting in Syria. Dozens are dead after two suicide bombs exploded in Syria's capital, city of Damascus. Turned their lives upside down. <laughs> Today marks the sixth anniversary of the start of the Syrian war. The years of violence have killed close to half a million people. And before the war, Syria's population was 22 million. And since then, huge numbers of people have fled. They left for Lebanon, both for economic reasons and safety reasons. And, I mean, there are so many different varieties of misery in refugee stories, but they really had a particularly miserable go of it. Mm. In Lebanon, they lived in squalid conditions. First, it was a refugee camp. Many of the Syrian refugees who flee to Lebanon end up in squalid, ramshackle, makeshift camps like this one. Really, really difficult living conditions. Rats um, running over mattresses on the floor. 
Uh, Muhammad couldn't get work. Um, refugees faced tremendous discrimination in places like Lebanon. The kids often went to bed hungry at night. They were not able to go to school. Um, instead, the kids worked for a dollar a day. They used to cry when they saw other kids getting on school buses who were able to go to school. Wissam got pregnant again, and they actually lost the baby a few hours after childbirth. But they had applied uh, to the UN as refugees, and lo and behold, they get a call one day saying, do you want to go to Canada? Tell me about meeting the Hajj family for the first time. They had been in Canada for like three days. I just went, it was my turn on the Sunday night to bring dinner to them. So I made sure it was halal, and I went and knocked on the so door. So you were, you were spoke- making dinner for people you hadn't met? I didn't make it. I bought it. Okay. I didn't know how to do it. <laughs> right. It's... But I went to a nice Asian, uh, Arabic restaurant and bought halal food for them. One of the things I remember I was doing, I was in the kitchen. I was washing all the dishes before I would put them away. And with some, the mother came to me and said, no, no, don't do that. I will do that. I mean, all sign language, obviously. And I said, no, no, you relax. Like, you're seven months pregnant. You go sit down. And I m- remember looking at their faces. They were very scared, I think. Like, they just didn't know quite what was going on. And I think they were just like, what's happening here? These families didn't understand private sponsorship and didn't know that they had private sponsors. And we heard after the fact that they've been told in Lebanon that we were going to steal their children, we were going to sell off the baby, you know, so they were worried about being separated and they were worried about leaving their children with these strange people they just met. And then the awe at the generosity sunk in over time. One person was doing the schooling. Somebody else was doing the schooling for the parents. And somebody else was taking on the dental care. Every couple hours, there's a knock on the door. Hmm. And it's a different member of the sponsor group or of the extended group of friends that are helping the sponsors. And somebody's there to do something for the family. If, 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 G, G, T, H, H, I, G, J, G, K, They're there to do a tutoring lesson with Wissam in English, or they're there to bring extra groceries, or they're there to do homework help with the kids. The father kept asking about who, you know, how are we going to pay for all this? Like, he's seeing this furniture, he's seeing this apartment, and he's like, he kept asking my friend, how am I going to pay for all this? And our friend kept telling him, don't worry, these people have raised money to help you, and they're going to pay for this. And I don't think he believed him. And I, I mean, I can't blame him for not believing it. Who would expect complete strangers to say, look, I'm going to pay your rent for the next year. I'm giving you all this furniture. Like, it's an amazing thing, but it is what's happening with all the sponsor groups. You know, to be honest, one of the questions about the sponsor group was almost whether they did too much for the family. Because on the one hand, doing things like teaching Wissam English was so incredibly important. On the other hand, the Hajj family became really reliant on these sponsors. And the level of effort that these sponsors expended, uh, Catherine and I are not really sure whether it's sustainable for regular people. I mean, these were retirees. They had a lot of time. Um, I don't know that a working professional could do what these people did. I had said I'd take on the medical responsibility, taking care of all the medical appointments, and the mother was pregnant. So I was taking her back and forth to obstetricians. I was taking the whole family to a general practitioner. And I had to find, and I did find, an Arabic-speaking female obstetrician and an Arabic-speaking general practitioner who would take on the family. 
and we're going for ultrasounds, we're going for tests for blood tests, you know, a lot of different stuff, especially at the beginning for the mother, to see where she was in her pregnancy, to see how she was, et cetera, et cetera. Perhaps the moment that shows how intimate sponsorship can actually become is when we Sam goes into labor. I was there in the labor room. And Peggy was actually in the labor and delivery room with we Sam. She was massaging her hand during contractions. Um, and all of a sudden, something goes wrong. And then it became an emergency cesarean, at which point they only had the translator stand outside the operating room and the rest of us were not allowed in the operating room at all. And, and you have to remember, this is a family that lost their previous child about six hours after she was born. And we Sam thought that she was going to die. She actually told Muhammad, take care of the kids for me. And they wheel her off. And the sponsors were there praying with Muhammad as, as you know, in, in one of the most terrifying moments of, of his life. What was that like to be there? Scary. Absolutely terrifying. Um, <laughs> get, every time I talk about this, I get emotional. Um, because I knew she'd lost the baby already. But I was really, really scared that, you know, we could have a really bad outcome again. And the mother was terrified. And then, after about half an hour... pediatrician came out and the doctor came out and said, the baby's fine, the mother's fine. Julia's healthy, she's healthy, and everything works out. And of course, when you're with this woman, while well, she's uh, care, she's giving birth to this baby, and you're there for all of this, you become very close to the woman and obviously very close to the children as well. And it's, it's just been a, a wonderful experience to be part of all of that. So, it's been a year. It'll work. There is a lot of forward motion, but a lot of challenge. <laughs> Mohammed has a job. He works in the kitchen of a Middle Eastern restaurant. He prepares hummus and chops vegetables. Uh, he gets there on his own on the subway. He likes his... Uh, co-workers. There are other Middle Eastern immigrants who talk to him. That is a really positive sign. Uh, We saw him as beginning to learn a little English. We've noticed that a lot of the Syrian women outpace their husband in learning English, which can become an issue in their marriages. However, she really does still spend most of the day alone in this apartment. She does not work. With this baby. She does not work. She has a small baby at home. The kids are racing ahead. Um, They are soccer champions. Uh, They know how to swim. Um, They are starting to skate, which is, of course, a really big deal Mm -hmm. in Canada. They're having playdates. They say they don't want to hang out with other Syrian kids because they don't only want to speak Arabic. Uh, I'm so glad that uh, you came. And uh, So last time I was there, I went to Majid and Zahia's parent-teacher conferences. They're in sixth grade, um, and she leads with the good news. Well, I can tell you right now, they're able to read. They started to read, translate. And Mohammed says... I'm so incredibly relieved to hear this because my fear was that they wouldn't be able to learn because we had waited so long to put them in school. They are eager to learn. They want to be in school. No matter what, with a big smile, they want to do the work. 
So the teacher, who's very intuitive, kind of instantly understands just what the depth of his fear had been and how um, how he had tortured himself mm-hmm. with the idea that his kids were never going to learn. So she decides on the spot to demonstrate. And there's this little pile of books, very elementary books, not even really Dr. Seuss level. Um, and she says to the kids... Okay, can you read? Yeah. Come on, let's, let's go. Okay. The shark... The shark... Played? Played, yes. Played with Mark. The shark played with Mark at the park. The shark played with Mark at the park until dark. Wow, and? <laughs> shark, Mark, bar- park, Very good. dark. Very good. Amazing. Okay. How about you? Oh, come on. They looked the happiest I had ever seen them. They looked so unburdened, so relieved. And I realized in a way that I had never seen them without the stresses of being a refugee. For the first time, it seemed like that was lifted a little bit. And the sponsors' reactions were just as interesting. The teacher turned to the sponsors and essentially gave them credit. She said, I know you guys have been showing up for daily homework And this is in part because of you. A lot of Canadians are really proud of what they have accomplished here. They know that they are being, they are on the world stage. They have received a lot of international attention for what they're doing. The United Kingdom and Argentina are in the process of launching uh, pilot programs. Other countries are interested. On the other hand, there are lots of people who feel like way too much has been given to the Syrians. What about the indigenous people in Canada? What about poor Canadians? Um, They're very concerned that people are, you know, going to just continue to, that are going to get stuck on welfare. And that's not okay with them. Yeah. 12 months is is up. Actually, we're 13 now. You're 13 months in. You've fulfilled your initial commitment as as sponsors. What is your relationship with the Hajjahs now? Well, I'm tutoring at least one night a week with the children. I'm tutoring one day a week with the mother. I'm still doing the obstetrician appointments because it's just it's too far. There's no way she can get there by bus. Take her two hours. So I'm driving her back and forth to that. And it's, it's a continuing thing. Like, there's no question in my mind if they call me and they need me for something, I will do it, just as I would do for anyone in my family. Mm-hmm. And I think they feel the same way, that they know they can call me. And if I'm there, I'll be there to help them. All right, Peggy, thank you very, very much. Um, You're welcome. Good luck to you. Okay, same to you. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Here's what else you need to know today. Well, here on Pushkin Square in the center of Moscow, the crowd is chanting, We are Russia. Thousands of Russians marched across 100 cities on Sunday in a major show of anger against government corruption. Russian police arrested hundreds of the demonstrators, including Alexei Navalny, a prominent political opponent of President Vladimir Putin. And Alex Jones here with an important note to our viewing, listening, and reading audiences. 
The popular right-wing radio show host has apologized for his role in promoting a fake story with real-world consequences. Days before the election, Jones's show repeatedly mentioned an unverified claim. Top Democratic Party officials were operating a child pornography ring out of Comet Ping Pong, a Washington pizzeria owned by James Elephantis. In our commentary about what had become known as Pizzagate, I made comments about Mr. Elephantis that in hindsight, I regret and for which I apologize to him. In December, a 28-year-old listener of Jones's show traveled six hours to investigate the claims himself, firing a rifle inside the pizzeria. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. When times became uncertain, Wampley pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Wampley has helped one million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Wampley helps small businesses thrive. Visit Wampley.com to learn more.